Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, uh, April the 11th, 2023. We've been doing a lot of shows on the health business, the health industry. One uh, couple of weeks ago with a very smart scientist, Nathan Price, on why he believes the future of medicine will be personalized, predictive, and data-driven. He has a new book out, The Age of Scientific Wellness. But of course, the issue of wellness is increasingly controversial and blurred because it not only refers to our physical, but our mental health. We've done many shows on what increasingly seems like an epidemic of ill mental health uh, over the years. One with Thomas Insel, who's a very powerful figure in Californian medicine. He has a new book out, um, Healing, uh, How We Get From Mental Illness to Mental Health. Another one with Phyllis Vine, who believes that the next major civil rights movement will be a mental health form of activism. A very interesting conversation, that one. Uh, of course, we've done a number of shows on the way in which men the, mental the, the mental illness pandemic is afflicting and affecting American young women. They seem to be particularly vulnerable, susceptible to this new epidemic. Uh, something, of course, on COVID and uh, mental health with Lucy Falks. Uh, she has a wonderful new book out, What Mental Health Really Is. Um, and, of course, mental health is often treated in part, perhaps, by uh, unusual um, and perhaps quite controversial drugs. We did a show with Carl Hart, a drug activist, I guess we could call him. He's a professor, I think, at Columbia University on... Americans' Right to Drug Use, his book, uh, Drug Use for Grown-Ups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear, is a huge hit, very controversial too. Uh, but what about drugs and mental health? Uh, today we're having a conversation with uh, William Brewer. He's the author of a, a novel, The Red Arrow, uh, which came out last year in hardback to much acclaim. It's just coming out this week in softback. And um, William has been described, I'm not sure uh, if he's comfortable with it, as a, a drug author. And the book, Red Arrow, has been described, sometimes uh, sympathetically, sometimes not, as a drug book. But it's certainly a book about mental health and drug use. And William is joining us from Oakland today. Uh, William... My introduction was a little sprawling. I apologize. I probably should have taken some drugs in advance. Um, am I being fair to you as a writer? Is this the right introduction to your novel, The Red Arrow? It's not a, a it's not a book by a doctor, but it addresses in part the affliction of mental ill health in our culture these days. Yeah, I think it's I think it's fair on. I mean, when it comes to the subject, uh of drugs, they've played a part in uh, a sort of central part in both books I've published. So uh, I can't dodge that. Uh, but with regards to mental health, the novel is 100% um, concerned with mental health, uh, what it is, uh, mental illness, how it functions, 
how we think about them versus what they maybe really are. Uh, and uh, specifically the promise of um, healing that comes through things like psychedelics in the case of this novel. Yeah, psychedelics now very much in fashion. You're over the Bay in the East Bay and in the South Bay in Silicon Valley, you teach at Stanford. So, you know, that area, too. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of hype over psychedelics. And often people are talking about psychedelics in, in the same sentence as generative AI going to tech conferences now, just as there are many panels on generative AI. There are now panels on, on psychedelics. Um, are you surprised with how? psychedelics have become quite fashionable? No, I'm not surprised at all. Uh, they were misunderstood for a long time because uh, many people acted quite irresponsibly with them. Um, they're fashionable in Silicon Valley because people see a way of maybe making money off of them or using them to optimize their potential to make money. Uh, but I don't think that really actually has anything to do with psychedelics uh, and the promise they're offering us right now, um, which they've always had, which is the capacity to allow us to heal uh, our minds and to take a, a very active um, role in doing that. Uh, they changed my life. They saved my life. And the enthusiasm around them with regards to mental health is real and should be taken very seriously. I think that they're 100 percent game changer. William, the book is very personal. I mean, it's not autobiography, but there's an element of memoir in it. Uh, how able are you to separate your own experience from this broader... Again, I've got to be careful with this language, but some people are describing uh, mental illness these days, especially amongst young people, as an epidemic. Do you see what you've been through as synonymous with the times or, or or is it separate and unique to to William Brewer himself? I think that um, my experience is like many people's experiences. Uh, you know, it was a part of my life for a very, very long time. I mean, I would say I, I sort of was kind of aggressively uh, under the sway of suicidal depression for, you know, about 20 years. And um, I don't think there's anything special about how it came into my life. I, th I think that... Um, the well, I, mean, I, I wasn't sort of setting you up for that. I'm not suggesting that you're in any way special, but I'm curious whether you see what you've been through as symptomatic of your of your generation, perhaps, or of, of, of a younger generation. I, I don't think it's necessarily symptomatic of a generation. I think people are waking up to it more. I think it's a problem that was always there. Um, you know, even, I mean, you see this with other situations. So even something like PTSD, for example, you know, people who came back from war always were struggling with it. We just now are willing to acknowledge it. And I think you could say the same is happening with, with depression and anxiety. Uh, that being said, I think that there's things like the rise of the internet, social media, um, all these different tools of distraction that the internet has brought into our life that have not helped things at all uh, and have allowed for the mind to indulge its worst impulses. Um, and a mind that's hijacked by things like anxiety or depression is a mind that wants to be distracted at all costs. Um, so, you know, it's not an accident that it's, it's in um, people's faces now, you know, more than ever, but I don't think it originated within the last couple of years by, by any stretch. The internet then is a kind of mist. I know that the the metaphor 
mm-hmm. of a mist is is central to 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 the way you think about mental illness in uh, in the red arrow is it a kind of mist the internet this what well, well you know we did, it's interesting we did a show with uh, <coughs> david Excuse me, David Chalmers, who writes on simulation. He has a new book out, Reality Plus, Virtual Worlds and the Problem of Philosophy. But I'm guessing that for you, the internet is reality minus, not reality plus. I, I think like a, a, there's something there about that idea of like virtual worlds. I mean, I, I tend to think about mental illness in terms sometimes of uh, it being a form of a hallucination and that anyone who's sort of watched a person in the throes of a, um, an anxious episode can see right away how what they are taking to be a thing to be worried about from the outside, you can tell is completely fine. It's not a big deal whatsoever. Uh, the internet is another form of that. People mistake it for something that is real. And I mean, of course, it's out there and it's happening, but its ability to change your perception, not just of people around you, but how you are supposed to sort of think about yourself and tell yourself the story of you about yourself can go haywire very easily. Um, and I think what's magical and, and kind of game-changing about psychedelics is that they also use things like the, a kind of hallucination technology. But in those spaces, you are able to see what is really not serving you uh, and what you've fallen under the sway of as reality, but is not reality at all. I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, the work of Patrick House. Um, He was on the show. It was actually one of the more memorable conversations we've had. He has a new book out, 19 Ways of Looking at Consciousness. He touches on psychedelics as well. Um, Is for you, perhaps not so much in a scientific, but in a literary sense, are you trying to rethink? I mean, it sounds a little pompous, but... Uh, I'm saying it rather than you. Are you trying to rethink consciousness in this book? I don't know if I'm trying to rethink it, but I or rewrite I, it. Perhaps I'm, I'm definitely. I was definitely intrigued by the potential of the novel to kind of capture an explicit texture, color that I feel consciousness has that I don't think fiction always honors. Uh, and part of that has to do with how we experience time. Part of that has to do with how we experience this thing called thinking. The, there's, there's awareness and then there's the mind. And when that mind starts telling stories, it's often telling a fiction. And so how might the device of a novel, this, this engine of fiction, play around with that was something I wanted to explore. Yeah, I I, do you know uh, House's work? I think he's somehow associated with Stanford. You teach at Stanford, but I think you'd find it very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the New York Times, which, like your book, called it um, a, a strange history in a good way. You weave past and present. But is it so strange? Is it only strange to those people who were rather narrow in their sense of what consciousness is and what reality is? Yeah, I, I like that. I don't think it's actually that strange. Um you know, if you spend a lot of time, as I do, uh, meditating, for example, you know, you can go and find texts that are thousands of years old where people are articulating the things that people are coming around to now uh, through things like psychedelics or through studies in neuroscience and psychiatry. And um, 
there's a reason they often use the language of awakening or waking up uh, when people start to kind of cut through a lot of the noise. And it's these things that at first sound strange actually become very clear and simple truths about experience. And a lot of the stuff that we take to be normal, you quickly realize is not normal at all. And is not only is it not normal, it's not helpful. William, in part, is it the job of the novelist? And of course, novelists don't have jobs. That's why they're novelists. Um, but is it the work of a novelist to normalize what's considered odd? I'm thinking, for example, of the work, very, very popular, the work, the, the literary work of Richard Powers, mm. Uh, in the way he seems to be normalizing another way of thinking about the earth and about autism and about childhood. Mm. Uh, the world seems so odd at the moment. It's, it's almost normal to have novelists like Powers or yourself, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, part of it might be normalizing, but if I think back over my reading life, a lot of what I when I felt most exhilarated as a young person and as a reader, even into today is when a book caused me to confront what I took to be normal and realized wasn't normal at all uh, and wasn't useful or was an assumption I didn't have to lean on uh, in any way. And when you're writing about something like psychedelics, for example, uh, you know, they've been around a while, but people get very kind of frustrated by them. Uh, they get and nervous as well. They get extremely nervous and something that, you know, they're not going to go away and they're going to appear in fiction more. And, you know, one thing I'm interested in is like people casting the book as a drug book, for example, is that there's ways to talk about these things that's different than the sort of fear and loathing in Las Vegas model or the Timothy Leary model that I'm just taking a bunch of stuff and then I'm going to go and have a wild time. Um, that these are things that show us something about our mind and they're useful tools. Uh, and fiction should engage with that. The novel should engage with that too. Literary people get very nervous about them because I think they feel like there's something kind of fundamentally unserious. Well, literary uh, people are always nervous, William. <laughs> doesn't matter. They're nervous in the they're morning, nervous. nervous in the evening. They have nervous dreams. They're just nervous. You mentioned Timothy Leary. There is a tradition of writing about this, not just in American literature, though particularly West Coast literature, uh, Burroughs as well. What mm -hmm. are you uh, and your generation, do you think, bringing new to this literature? If the work of Leary or someone like Burroughs or Ken Kesey was trying to cause a whole generation to kind of drop out, as they said, you know, to, to come awake to the fact that America as it was operating maybe wasn't, wasn't the dream people were selling it as. I think that what people are starting to engage with now when writing about psychedelics is that the way that we have taken the experience of consciousness as it's often portrayed, for, we've taken it for granted and that we don't need to engage with it that way anymore. That even the way in which the internet, for example, often rewards um, tweets or posts that where people are sort of confessing their anxieties or their need to be distracted or something like that, um, that that stuff is not only uh, that that stuff isn't really real, that it's just noise of the mind. It's thought that we've learned to believe is real. Uh, 
Uh, and I think fiction is an incredible device actually to dig into that, to make that an experiential reality as opposed to just a conceptual one. Did the writing of the novel, did it help you in your, as you say, your, your lifelong struggle with depression, with mental illness? Or was it a, a, in a sense you had the catharsis earlier and the writing was manifesting that? Yeah, so I, I underwent psychedelic therapy in 2019. Uh, I was very, very ill and it, it totally changed my life. And it was after that experience that I wrote the book. And when you do psychedelic therapy, a lot of attention is placed on the fact that you're taking a bunch of mushrooms and having a very intense cathartic experience, mind expanding and sometimes sort of mind altering. But there's a crucial part that you do after, which is what they call integration, which is where you talk with the therapist or the guide um, about what that experience was like, what you witnessed, what you can discern from it. And you sort of settle that stuff into you in a way that goes from feeling like thought to something more like wisdom or tr just deep truth. And there was certainly a component where I think you could look at this book as a kind of integration novel in a way. The speaker is recounting somewhat freshly after an experience how his perceptions and his relationship to his mind and how his understanding of consciousness sort of entirely has shifted. Uh, and I certainly got that experience as well in writing it. We want people to uh, to read the book, um, William. Mm -hmm. uh, and so far, probably people think this is a kind of a weird book, um, which it is and it isn't. I mean, there's a lot of very concrete reality in it. Uh, my favorite bits in the book are about the Italian train journey, the Italian rail system, <laughs> which is my favorite in the world. You don't have to take psychedelics to go on on on, on the Italian railways. What is it about movement and, 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 and the Italian rail system in particular, which encouraged you to, to make that in some way central to the book? And, and perhaps you might just say something about the narrative, because it has a real narrative. It's not totally weird. No, the book is not totally weird at all. It's in some ways very practical in, in some spaces. Uh, the book begins with a narrator who is on a train called the Freccia Rosa. It's the speed rail in Italy. And the book Nothing people, like it. I no, wish it's phenomenal. It right now. It's phenomenal. Uh, and you even get food and everything. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. So the book begins when he is uh, departing from Rome and he's going into the north of Italy to find a famous uh, physicist who he works for as a ghostwriter. And the man has gone um, AWOL. He can't find him and he desperately needs to find him because he's working on a project the money from which will clear out a great deal of debt he's gotten himself into. Uh, the book begins when the train leaves the station. And as he, they pull away, he sort of starts to go into his memories to figure out how he got himself into the position that he's in. And the, over this sort of sweep of the book, it covers um, his life in New York and a sort of art career that he had at one time. Uh, a large-scale chemical spill disaster that he lived through in West Virginia. Um, uh, there's a section that involves psychedelics and psychedelic therapy in California. And then there's a section that occurs in Italy and plays around with certain ideas in physics. Uh, so in some ways, the book is about the mind. Some ways, the book is about what it means to make a life in art. Uh, and on a very you know, big, big way, I would say that the book is a love story as well. Modern physics also challenges 
how we think about reality. Uh, and I'm not saying all modern physicists are into psychedelic use of psychedelics, but there is an, an odd connection between the two, isn't there? There is. Um, but it, I think it makes perfect sense uh, in the same way that a lot of people are able to kind of find a footing in meditation, for example, after a large scale psychedelic experience. What physics, especially very complicated physics and theoretical physics, stuff that deals with quantum mechanics, for example, it completely destabilizes and in some ways sort of demolishes uh, the re reality as we take it. It shows us that it's not really there, at least not as we think it is. Um, and psychedelics are a tool that does that as well. It shows you just very simply that this sort of standard form of consciousness as you've experienced it is just one form of consciousness that's available. And that when that, when that gets made clear, a lot of stuff opens up. Certain spaces and possibilities of thinking become much more possible and they start to feel much more practical. So it doesn't ever surprise me when I learn that a very famous physicist took a hit of acid here or there. Uh, it makes perfect sense to me in a way. You're certainly not the first or the last novelist, American or otherwise, to use Italy in your book. Thinks of, I don't know, so many books, Death in Venice, for example. I wonder whether there's something about Italy that is a replacement for something more uh, profound, not profound, but uh, metaphysical. Uh, wh why did you choose yeah. Italy in, in a, in a post-what Nietzsche called and what Thomas Mann was writing in a, a, a post-God world? I mean, one of the practical answers would just be that I was over there when I was when the book was sort of coming into my mind. Uh, but I've always been deeply drawn to Italian culture. And I think that anyone who's been to Italy finds appealing in one way is this sort of long sweep of time that you can experience, that you can be, um, you know, sipping an espresso right next to a very, very, very old column that has been knocked over in the grass for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And the book is interested in some ways in that, these long sort of extended experiences of time and how, especially in our current era, our understanding of time has gotten manipulated so much and speeded up so much because of things like the internet and social media. And the kind of strangeness of that is always extremely appealing to me. I also think that it's a place of immense drama. I mean, the landscape is beautiful. The fact that it's on this sort of seismic plane where things like volcanoes and earthquakes happen, it's, it does have a sort of special vibratory power that um, I think in some ways goes beyond anyone's ability to articulate it in language. So in a sense, Italy collapses time, past, present, future. They all somehow mm -hmm. come together. Mm -hmm. um, is that in a sense also perhaps what psychedelics do? Yeah, I mean, psychedelics absolutely do that. If you take a, a big enough dose, one of the first things that goes is linear time as we understand it. And that can be one of the things that makes it actually so liberating is it pulls you out of this sweep that you call the sort of story of your life. And instead there's kind of everything around and that affords a certain set of understandings, a way to understand the relationship between things uh, in a way that without them is not maybe right. There isn't apparent right away. What's amazing though, is when one comes out of psychedelics, 
the power of those experiences, the things one can sort of experience through witness stays with them in a very sober mind. Uh, and that's been such a gift in my life, for sure. But it makes the world, or it sounds a little fuzzy. Uh, your, the reviews of your book have generally been good, but I read one or two reviews that suggested an element of fuzziness. I'm not sure if you've looked at all of them. Mm-hmm. As a novelist in this area, is it particularly challenging to, to give your work a, a concreteness uh, for, for regular readers, as well as making sure that the book is, is readable and coherent? Um, I'm, I don't think that I felt uh, the book to be fuzzy in any way or like it wasn't concrete necessarily. Uh, there's an engagement with um, psychedelic experience in the book and uh, the way that's handled is actually like an extremely sort of almost not extremely, but a almost scientific way in which the material is presented in the form of like a chart through which people can navigate it as they see fit at their own pace, what have you. Um, I think that what some people respond to as a kind of fuzziness is just the fact that things we take to be givens crumble away when you talk about certain facts of consciousness. So things like linear time, for example, or um, what we would call the self, this thing that we all kind of have going on in our heads, this story we are telling ourselves about ourselves isn't really real it's it's just not and psychedelics punt it right out of the right off the field and meditation can do that as well and i think sometimes people get really upset about that that feels quite threatening to them in a way and so instead of kind of encountering the mystery that is a part of life and fiction can certainly do that we sometimes decide to refer to that as fuzziness um, which I understand, but I don't necessarily agree with it. Meditation, altered consciousness, all these things which seem quite fashionable and new today were always a, a feature of a religious world, particularly sort of a, a mystical traditions in Islam and Christianity and Judaism. Do you think in that sense, for you and, and other writers and thinkers in this area, you're simply reviving a tradition in a secular sense? Um, I don't necessarily think of it as being revived in a secular sense, in part because the contemplative traditions, especially in, in Asia, there's plenty of secular contexts for them. Uh, I think that people have misused the this the promises of meditation to um, turn it into sort of a new wellness trend, which is that it's just going to make you feel good all the time. The wellness I talked to Price about this, he agreed that the term wellness, we've done some shows on what a scam that whole movement is. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the, the goal of meditation is not to make you feel good all the time. The goal is to wake you up to how, thoughts and emotions exist in this broader scope that we would call consciousness or awareness. And that there's an immense freedom that can be had from understanding that much of what's boiling up in your head is not you. It's just thinking and that thinking isn't really anything. Um, And I know that can sound fuzzy to people, but what's remarkable about something like meditation is that 
it's something you can actually just have an experience with. It's not a religious experience. Uh, it's just a fact of experience itself of what it means to be in consciousness. And the reason I think psychedelics have, have in some ways sort of rushed up to the forefront again is that when you take these medicines at a really high dose, you get pulled out of the equation. And what is left is this thing called awareness. And you're able to sit in awareness and watch your mind function. And I was able to watch how depression functioned in my brain and realized very simply that it was a complete hallucination. It was just a story I'd been telling myself about myself for 20 years that had no basis in reality whatsoever. So when I walk out of that experience or when I meditate today, it's not about feeling sort of like I'm charged with joy. It's that I have a certain intense clarity about right, it. It allowed you to escape from, from, the, from Plato's cave. Gabriel. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, I, I mentioned um, Carl Hart earlier, his book, um, Drug Use for Grownups. Not surprising, he has huge, uh, he's got 1,500 reviews on Amazon. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a growing debate about whether doctors should be able to prescribe psychedelics. I'm assuming you think they should. But you also teach at Stanford, and it seems um, as if the mental health epidemic in particular is affecting young people. What are your thoughts on uh, young people and psychedelics? Should there be I mean, should 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds have access to it? Do we need to have a, a serious conversation about this sort of thing? When we talk about having a serious conversation, it means we have no idea really what to do. I mean, I'm not going to say whether or not teenagers should be doing psychedelics. I can say from my own experience that some early experiences uh, with psychedelics in my youth were uh, some of the most important moments of my life. They probably kept me alive, though I didn't realize it at the time, uh, struggling as I was even then with mental illness. Um, I think that in the, in the broader scale, there's this move to bring psychedelics into spaces that are going to help people. And part of that is all of a sudden a lot of institutions start to get involved and the institutionalization of psychedelics themselves. Uh, and I think that there's a danger of moving too quickly. And I think there's a danger of making the mistakes that happened the first time around, which is not paying attention to the people who've been engaged with these things for a very long time and have a great deal of knowledge about them and how to use them in ways that are helpful and, uh, and positive. So, you know, that part of that means also that recreational experience might be very useful for some people. Now, whether that should be teenagers, I'm not going to, you know, I have, I have no business making that call. Uh, but they're, they're good things for people at certain times in their life. That's for certain. That's for certain. You mentioned the train crash in your book. Um, brought to mind, of course, uh, Delilo's White Noise. I know mm -hmm. you're a, a fan of Delilo and of... The real train crash uh, earlier this year, uh, which was a replay of, of, of white noise. Um, did you write the train crash stuff? I assume you wrote it, of course, before these train crashes. What, what happens with books like yours and Delilo's when, again, we have to use this term carefully because 
uh, it always comes with uh, in, in in italics with you when reality catches up to the novelist. Mm-hmm. Are you always, in a sense, as a novelist, trying to to keep ahead of reality, William, on your uh, on your Frecchia Rossi train, speeding ahead? I don't know if I'm ever trying to keep up with reality. You know, when I first read White Noise, for example, a book that means a great deal to me, I had read it, uh, you know, it was maybe like 2008 or 2009. And I had just come back uh, to America after being in Europe for the first time. And and I had a real sense of culture shock about the United States. And while I was uh, in, in the U.S. reading the book, there was a big toxic airborne event, just like the one that happens in white noise. And so I think it's not that white noise is ahead of reality or that I'm ahead of reality. It's that these things are always going on and that what fiction can do is refocus our lens to see stuff that we don't always want to be paying attention to.